Chapter Eighteen of Miss Frances Baird, Detective, by Reginald Wright Kaufman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The inquest, though looked on from the outside as a suicide and a theft, the Deneen mystery had nevertheless, as was in fact to be expected, excited no small amount of interest from the moment that word of it was flashed over the wires into New York. When later there came the news that Lawrence Fredericks had been arrested and charged with murder, this interest was more than doubled. Those were the early and halcyon days of yellow journalism, and the morning papers had been full of the affair. Already the announcement had gone abroad that, the detectives being confident of the solidity of their case, the inquest would be held without delay, and the whole countryside seemed to be driving into town to be present at the hearing. The coroner, a pudgy little man named Washburn, with a weak face and an important manner, had come over from the county town to preside, and the district attorney, who was a good deal like a fox-terrier, had accompanied him, ostensibly, to look after the interests of the commonwealth, but in reality to conduct the examinations and support the case of the detectives. Impressed with the importance of the case, which was, of course, beyond their previous experience, and greedy for whatever notoriety they could extract from it for themselves, these two officials had arranged to hold the sessions of their court in the council chamber in the town hall. Thither, at the appointed hour, I made my way, and, passing the farmer's wagons tied at the curb, I ran the gauntlet of a half a dozen journalistic cameras and mounted to the second floor. Two rural policemen at the door passed me on to two others inside, and these at last found me a seat among the hastily procured benches which filled more than half of the room. All about me was a crowd of curious country folk, ahead, beyond a railed space, the councilmen's desks, now given over to a dozen or more reporters, and beyond that a small platform where sat the coroner. That gentleman began by saying a few words in his own behalf. Thanks, he remarked, to the diligent efforts of the clever detectives with whom this office was fortunate enough to be provided, and thanks also to the great assistance offered by the celebrated New York detective, Mr. Ambrose Kemp, he had been enabled to summon this inquest within a wonderfully short time after the death of the deceased, and, also thanks to the gentleman aforementioned, the proceedings would doubtless be considerably simplified. "'It is your duty, sirs,' continued this Daniel, addressing the jury, which sat within the rail on one side of the more necessary reporters, "'it is your duty to listen to the evidence, and from that to determine how James J. Deneen, Jr. met his death.' Here there was a brief pause. The district attorney, who bore the appropriate name of Kerr, whispered to Kemp, seated at his elbow, just below the coroner, and then the two tiptoed forward and put their heads together with that of Mr. Washburn. As they talked, I craned my neck and caught sight of Mr. Gray at the other side of the enclosed space, and beside him Lawrence, his fine face calm and almost stern, except for a slight look of disdain, which, though doubtless justified, I could not think calculated to win him any of that favour of every particle of which he stood in such dire need. The mock sidebar conference ended, Mr. Washburn chirped up again. "'We have decided,' said he, "'that it will be unnecessary to hear the testimony of the members of the dead young man's stricken family. We will confine ourselves to the matters of identification, cause of death, to the testimony of the detectives I have named, and perhaps to that of one or two other people.' call dr neath and dr neath was called and sworn he was the coroner's physician and had it appeared performed the autopsy he was summoned first to identify the body for he had known young denine 
and then to describe the wounds. Mr. Kerr did the questioning, and after eliciting the astounding fact that the dead man actually was James J. Deneen, Jr., was informed that the cut in the throat had been most thorough. Both jugular veins and both carotid arteries had been severed. So had the trachea and the pneumogastric nerve. Death had, therefore, been practically instantaneous. "'You examined the cut carefully, doctor?' The doctor had examined the cut most carefully. "'And could it, in your opinion, have been by any possibility self-inflicted?' "'By no possibility at all,' the doctor thought, and so showed me that I would not, after all, have been safe in my quantum plan and Kemp's to hold to the pretense of suicide until our case was perfectly prepared. "'Mr. Ambrose Kemp!' My dapper little fellow danced to the stand beside the coroner and was sworn with every theatrical flourish. "'You say you are a detective, Mr. Kemp?' asked the district attorney. Kemp had as yet said nothing of the kind, but he probably would have said so had he been given half a chance, so he now replied, "'Yes, sir.' "'In whose employ?' "'In the employ of the Watkins Agency, 32 Bolton Street, New York. "'Tell us when and how you were summoned to Black Springs.' Kemp obeyed. He also sketched our abortive plan for watching the jewels, and went on to tell of how that was carried into effect until I went on my fatal watch. On the fact that the theft had occurred in his absence, you may be sure, he laid a special stress. "'At what time did you return to the gift-room, Mr. Kemp?' "'At 2.45 a.m.' "'You are certain?' Yes, because that was the time fixed for me to relieve Miss Baird, and I was careful, as I always am, to be punctual. Where did you find Miss Baird? In the gift room, standing in front of the table where the jewels had been. And what did you discover? That the real jewels had been replaced by paste ones, a rather clever and pretty close imitation. What then occurred? We talked about what we had best do, for I felt sure that the thief must be one of the party, and that took about ten minutes, certainly not more than twelve. Then Mr. James J. Deneen, Jr. came in. What did he say? He said that the first thing to be done was to notify his father, that he said he had some important business to attend to in his own room, and that we'd find him there. How did he appear? Well, he didn't seem so much surprised as you might expect. Then what did he do? He left. The talk with him hadn't taken more than two minutes at the outside. And after it, we went right down and told his father. The old gentleman was alone, for the guests had all gone by that time. Then we started upstairs with Mr. Deneen. Meaning the elder Mr. Deneen? Yes, sir, the father. The son, Mr. James, had gone to his room, you see. Well, I looked at the clock as we started, and saw that it was just five minutes past three. So you had been gone about five minutes? Yes, sir. And what did you find on returning to the gift room? That the pastules were missing, too. Then, of course, you talked matters over with Mr. Deneen? For about five minutes or more, yes, sir. Then I started round to call young Mr. Deneen, his brother and Mr. Fredericks, while Miss Baird went after Mrs. Deneen. I couldn't get into James Jr.'s room, where I went first, and called to Miss Baird to help me. Called her low, so that no one else could hear. She came. There was a light going from inside, but we couldn't get in. So after another five minutes fooling, I mean five minutes altogether from the time I left the gift room in care of the old gentleman, I forced the door. That must have been at about 3.14? Just about. And what did you see inside that room? Well, he told it, never omitting a single gruesome detail, and never failing to take to himself credit for anything that there was any credit in. Everybody was intent upon him, but my eyes sought Lawrence, 
and I saw him pass a nervous hand across what appeared to be a thoroughly mystified face. "'And what?' pursued the district attorney. "'Was in the dead man's hand?' "'A big clasp-knife.' "'Were the fingers closed on it?' "'No.' "'Then it looked as if it had been placed there by some person other than Mr. Deneen.' But at this point Mr. Gray got to his feet, his keen eyes snapping. "'Mr. Corner,' he said, "'I am here in the interest of Mr. Lawrence Fredericks, who has had the misfortune unjustly to be arrested in connection with this case. We are as anxious as the district attorney to have the truth brought to light, but I must protest against unwarranted questions that have no other reason than to direct suspicion toward my client.' "'What do you mean?' snapped Mr. Kerr. "'I mean that you are asking this witness a question in reply to which he can express only an opinion, and the opinion of a layman at that. How is he qualified to say whether or not this knife looked as if it had been placed there by some other person?' There was an awkward pause. The coroner plainly did not know at all what to do, and the district attorney was too angry to do anything. But at last Mr. Kemp came to the rescue. "'The blade was pointed away from the body,' he explained. "'Wait until you're asked,' thundered Mr. Gray. "'And so,' hurried Kemp, "'it wasn't the way he'd have held it if he'd done the cutting himself.' Now this was true. I had thought of it myself, but only after finding the key in the hall, and I was sure that Kemp had not thought of it at all until somebody had put the idea into his head. Be that as it may, however, the answer had been secured, and Mr. Gray had to sit down with a protest against such unusual procedure, while the triumphant Mr. Kerr resumed his examination, which showed that the witness had remained in the dead man's room for ten minutes and broken into that of Mr. Fredericks at 3.25. The condition of that apartment, and particularly the evidences of its occupant's extraordinary means of exit, were dwelt on at considerable length, Mr. Gray vigorously protesting, but Mr. Washburn, having recovered a degree of courage, calmly supporting the district attorney. Next there followed the incident of the key. We found it in the hall, said Kemp. And then, as the district attorney held up a large clasp-knife with one big, dark-stained blade open, the witness identified it as the one he had found in the hand of the murdered man. "'That will do for the present,' said Mr. Kerr, and the detective resumed his former place at the examiner's side. "'Mary O'Keefe!' This was the chambermaid, who simply identified the knife as one belonging to young Deneen, and generally kept on his writing-desk. Then again the heads of Kemp, Washburn, and Kerr went together, and as a result my name was called. I came up smiling, but afraid, and the ordeal began. My examination was made by Mr. Kerr, with frequent references to notes which he held in his hand, and the source of which I did not have to guess long to determine. Sometimes he even frankly paused and whispered to Kemp for instructions. "'Miss Baird, what is your business?' "'I am a private detective.' You were retained by Mr. Deneen at the same time and in the same manner as Mr. Kemp? I was. You have heard his testimony? Yes. Is it correct? As to facts, and so far as it goes, yes. State what occurred during the time you were alone watching the jewels and just before the return of Mr. Kemp, when you informed him that they had been stolen. I glanced at Lawrence, but his face was hidden by his hand. I knew, however, that if I appeared an unwilling witness, I would only prejudice his case. So I finally answered with apparent readiness. When I had finished, Kerr again whispered with Kemp, and then continued. "'You say you overheard two people talking on the neighboring balcony. Who were they?' "'I don't know.' Kerr looked surprised. Kemp sneered. "'You don't know? How's that?' "'Because I did not see them, 
and being a comparative stranger, I could not swear to their voices. That, at all events, was literally true. Moral certainty is one thing, legal knowledge is quite another, as I have had frequent occasion to learn, along with the majority of my fellows. More consultation followed. Then, "'Have you heard either of the voices since that time?' asked Hemp via Kerr. "'I couldn't, of my own knowledge, swear that I have.' Kerr lost his temper, and consequently his caution. "'Oh, well,' he cried, "'but you know you have.' Thereat Mr. Gray was once more on his feet with a protest that even the coroner had to acknowledge as just. It was clearly an impasse, and the district attorney had to try a new tack. After Mr. Kemp had taken you into Mr. Frederick's rooms, and after, coming back, he had left you alone with the body, what did you do? That I told willingly enough, up to my return from the cellar, for, after all, I had to give them the truth when it could not be avoided. What then? persisted Kerr. Then, after I had sent young Mr. Deneen to his father, I went downstairs again. What for? Well, to look for Mr. Fredericks. You thought it worth while to look for him at that time? Never mind what you thought, Miss Baird, shouted Mr. Gray. Very well, smiled the district attorney, and he could afford to smile, for he had me now. You said you went to look for Mr. Fredericks. Did you take a note of the time? I went out at five minutes after four, and I waited until twenty minutes after five. At the end of that time, did Mr. Fredericks return? He did. What direction did he come from? I don't know. It was dark, and I did not see him until he came with the light from the windows of the house. What did he say? That he had found, fifteen minutes before, that he could not sleep, and so had started out for a stroll, going by way of the roof, so as not to disturb anybody. I would have bitten out my tongue rather than have to say it, but what else was there to do? Kerr passed to the visit to Frederick's quarters in town. "'You found waistcoats there, such as Mr. Frederick's wore with evening clothes?' "'Yes, but the buttons were not of the same sort as that which I discovered in the furnace at the Maples, and when, that afternoon, we examined his evening clothes—' "'Never mind that, Miss Baird. I haven't summoned you as an expert chemist. Did you find in Mr. Frederick's rooms these letters?' He held them up for me to identify. They had stolen them, then. I should have burned them as I had at first felt prompted to do. As it was, I couldn't have seen them had he put them into my two hands. I only nodded. He did, however, have the decency to refrain from reading them. "'We will turn them over to the jury,' he remarked. And again Mr. Gray protested in vain. "'I think,' Kerr concluded, "'that we may now excuse you, Miss Baird.' "'Wait a minute,' said Mr. Gray. And then, with the coroner's permission, he asked me about the test of the evening clothes which we got before the jury in spite of the district attorney's remonstrances. This made that gentleman feel rather ill toward me, and after a word with Kemp, he chipped in, "'Are you still in the employ of the Watkins Agency, Miss Baird?' "'I am not.' "'When did your connections with that agency cease?' "'Last evening, when I voluntarily resigned.' Gray seemed to scent a chance. "'And why did you resign, Miss Baird?' he asked. "'Because,' I answered, "'I did not approve of Mr. Kemp's unscrupulous methods of conducting his investigation of this case, which, if not strictly true, was at least pardonable. But that about ended matters. The Gottschalk detail was told, and the other detectives, reinforced by the recall of Kemp, narrated the events which led up to Lawrence's arrest, and so the case was given to the coroner's jury, which very promptly found, as everybody knew they would, 
that James J. Deneen, Jr. came to his death from a knife wound in the throat administered by Lawrence Fredericks. End of chapter 18